You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Speaking of making graveyards cooler, welcome to another episode of the Center for Auto Safety podcast. Listeners, if you have a better name for the podcast, let us know. We might change it. We might not. I don't know. We'll figure that out. Um, but just before we started, we were I was mentioning how I was driving down the street the other day and the lane markers disappeared. And um, Michael had a good question. How does Tesla navigate that? And with that, let's... Uh, there was an article in the New York Times where this uh, Tesla, I, I can't call him a fanboy because he's a grown man in his 50s, took out a New York Times reporter and said, hey, this full self-driving thing's amazing. Let's go in my car and I'm going to have it take us to a barbecue joint. And the car drove them to a motel. Um, if the car was actually smart, it would have driven them to a nutritionist. But, you know, this is how full self-driving works so it's a it's a great article and what was most interesting to me about the article is not the catastrophic failures of the full self-driving it was that this guy apparently does it for free he's a <laughs> essentially a full-time test driver for tesla mr cook um assiduous he's got his own traffic situation named after him the cook turn i think they called it the cook left turn and he, he's obviously done a tremendous amount of work for Tesla, but there's never any mention in there that he's a Tesla employee. So it's it's interesting that people would risk their lives to promote this technology for no compensation. Um, I, I, I don't, I, you got to admire the dedication, but it's a it's a puzzling phenomenon. To quote you, some people enjoy jumping out of planes. Well, that's true. It's uh, that is true. I mean, when, uh, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time in the software industry and it always surprised me when people are like, hey, give me the beta software. I want to put that on my expensive computer and test it for you for no compensation. And I'd point out your computer's probably going to break. Please give it to me. So, you know, I guess people are just doing that with their own lives. Um, yeah, I mean, we at, at some point i think we're we're trying to figure out what the law is on human test subjects in the united states if you're not receiving government funding it seems like you can do a little of anything um and i've always wondered if it applies in this case where you're not only you know using your drivers and the public to test this out you're using people who never consented to be tested upon um and didn't even buy the car so it's it's an interesting subject and there were a number of things that went on um in that article that you can see dangerous situations that could develop for instance when the tesla stopped when it was making a left turn onto a divided highway stopped in the median but left its butt hanging out into the fast lane of the um oncoming traffic um which is something that is super dangerous and can result in a really really damaging side impact collision or worse um so there are a lot of concerns there and it's another reason why when you look at the standing general order data that that was released today on their monthly update by NHTSA Tesla is still far far in in the lead as far as incidents go they have they're approaching 500 incidents if you uh dedupe the data um whereas someone like GM who is putting expanding its super cruise network so far only has three reports um over the last year or so 
What 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 exactly qualifies as an incident? What does that mean? <clears throat> it's a crash in a vehicle that's operating with um its for instance things like adaptive cruise. And it's it's where the vehicle is being controlled both forwardly forward and laterally. So basically there are um it's level two plus is the way it was described, although we we're not sure how accurate that is. Um, but it's not just for like automatic emergency braking or just for lane keeping. But when the car combines those types of features to control the movement of the vehicle. OK. And the other thing they mentioned in this article, and they do this a lot with self-driving cars, is they talk about unprotected left turns. What's an unprotected left turn? Isn't that just a left turn? Like what it's a left turn. It doesn't have any traffic signals. Or it doesn't have any uh, control of oncoming traffic. I think that's what it means. So, <clears> so it's just, it's, just it's what you would do is you know a standard left turn, but there's no green arrow, for example. There's there's nothing to restrict oncoming traffic, except their better judgment. Even with a green arrow, the only thing restricting that is you know hoping the other person doesn't want to die. I think it would also be a um, yeah an unprotected left turn would be when. Anytime the oncoming traffic, even if there is a signal, they have the right of way. So if you're making a turn on a green, but not a green arrow, um, and you have to make sure you watch for oncoming traffic, that's an unprotected left turn. Yeah. And so you mentioned um, the Super Cruise expansion. So GM Super Cruise is the system where they say, hey, you can drive on, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of miles of road right now that we've mapped all of these out. So yep. we have an operating design domain of where the car should operate and it should be okay you still need to monitor the gm vehicles have cameras facing in at the driver to see that they're actually paying attention i do not believe teslas do that um nor yeah they have kind of a system they added in um but it's not a great driver monitoring system in our opinion what tesla has um GM's was built basically from the ground up with the driver monitoring system as a part of it. I mean, we think driver monitoring is critical in um, this area because it's it's becoming pretty clear that the more automation you put in a car, the less the human has to do, the harder the vehicle has to work to make sure the driver is engaged. Um, and so far, at least based on the reports in the standing general order, it looks like um gm is doing a, a a decent job here we're not seeing a a bunch of reports and so you know we'll obviously keep keep watching as they expand it. it looks like it's a pretty massive expansion and i think they started rolling it out yesterday so um we'll start looking for it in the future standing general order reports and hopefully everything goes well and we don't see them pop up do we know how many miles Super Cruise is driven versus Tesla? Because, you know, the Tesla fanboys will be like, wait, but we've driven to the moon and back and forward and sideways, and I didn't even touch the steering wheel. Yeah, well, but I'm if you glad change you your asked. software every day, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. I poked into their uh, website a little bit, and they're supporting documentation for Super Cruise. And what they say on the website is 34 million miles have been driven so far, and that that's a testament to how safe it is. But what people have to recognize is that typically there is one fatality per every 100 million miles driven in traditionally operated cars. So the fact that they've gone 34 million miles without a fatal incident uh, really just says, well, hell, you got a lot more testing that you got to do. You've got to go to multiples 
of that 100 million miles and demonstrate safety in that many multiples of 100 million miles before you've got the confidence to say, well, this is actually safer than a conventionally driven vehicle. Um, I also, I also want to say, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. I was gonna, but how many crashes generally happen per that, you know, prefer every 34 million miles, for example, not fatalities. Um, I think there's a, a rough, uh, a rough estimate of something like 10 non-fatal incidents per every fatal incident. Okay. So, so you would expect to have, you know, multiples at 34 million miles. And that's exactly what Michael said. The test data is showing. Okay. But there's, there's another thing about the super cruise that is, is interesting. They never mentioned how they measure safety. They, uh, they say they're quote, expanding access while prioritizing safe deployment, close quote, but they never say what that means. There's no reference statistics or metrics or analysis to support the claim. What they do mention is that their experience with crews in San Francisco with driverless vehicles supports their claim of safety. But uh, Anthony, didn't we have a couple observations about the cruise experience in San Francisco that maybe poke a hole in that claim? Yeah, the, the cruise vehicles would just stop and give up in the middle of the road and decide they want to go to the circus. They don't want to drive these cars anymore. Um, they were uh, struggling to make unprotected left turns, struggling to make any sort of turn. Uh, one of them hit a bus, isn't that right? Um, just no, it didn't hit it. It, it uh, came up really close. Came up, Yeah, okay, it came up very close to it. So Kind of like yeah. a date where you got to third base, I guess, something like yeah. that. Yeah, and then... It, the cruise was me too because you know it didn't have consent. And there's another interesting thing on their website if you delve into it a little bit. It says, "quote, but they're also making the technology work as it should before it reaches our customers." Close quote. Now it's interesting the verb. They say they are making the technology work. They never say we did make it safe. We did demonstrate that it was safe. So they're, you know, essentially telling the world that this is all an experiment and good luck with it. And we hope it works out. We continue to try to make it, quote, making the technology work as it should, close quote. But uh, but it's not there yet. And they acknowledge that. And the whole drive behind their super cruise is just convenience. They want people to show up refreshed and happy at their destination. It's got absolutely nothing to do with safety. So I, I think in GM's mind, in their engineer's mind, there is confusion about the use of inductive logic versus deductive logic, but that's probably an aside for another session. We'll, we can talk about that some other time, I guess. Okay, and does Super Cruise cost me an extra $15,000 per vehicle, or is it just built in? They don't line item it. Well, it comes wrapped into the vehicle. The Super Cruise and their advanced Super Cruise are only in a limited number of models. It's not in all of their models. Right. And so uh, it, it comes with the model. I don't think it's an option for them. Mm, but, does it come uh, with undercoating? I think, undercoating? Under, I think you can undercoat the Super Cruise. I'm not sure. That's they good. might get rusty. Okay. Well, I, I think given what we've been talking about, I think we're going to uh, change the order here. And we're just going to go right into the, the Tau of Fred um, because this week's topic is uh, driver monitoring and we're already kind of talking about driver monitoring to an extent. And let me see if I can say the word monitoring correctly. I got to work on my elocution. Yes, driver, driver monitoring. monitoring. There we All go. All right. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. Well, here we go. Um, 
There are different kinds of driver monitoring. Traditionally, um, a backseat driver is, in a sense, a kind of driver monitor who is somebody who is free to offer unsolicited advice to the person driving the vehicle, like my right, uh, whether or not it's needed. Passenger. But that that is, in a sense, a kind of driver monitor, uh, primitive Fred Flintstone kind of driver monitor. And then you've got the tactile driver monitoring systems that require a tactile response or a human being to touch or do something to the steering wheel in order to verify that they are still in control of the vehicle or potentially in control of the vehicle. Um, the, then you've got the system in the Super Cruise, which monitors a person's eye motion and verifies using their analytics that the person's attention is focused on the road. I don't know of any study that's been published that verifies that that in fact works, but it certainly sounds like a good idea. Um, all of the systems that I'm aware of have some means of verifying that a human being is in fact at the controls and is able to presumably take over control of the vehicle for SAE level two, which are the currently available cars and SAE level three cars. The problem that arises with all of these is that if the system determines that the human is not in control, what happens then? If you know it, it somehow needs to revert to a human being in control, and I've done some experiments on my Subaru, and uh, lights start to blink and, and the car starts to slow down if you simply ignore the warnings to grab the wheel. But I've never had the courage to test whether or not it actually comes to a safe stop by the side of the road. Maybe someday I'll try that. Um, but save save yourself when you do that because we're gonna that's what we're gonna do a live episode. <laughs> we're gonna get it right from the driver's seat. I certainly hope it's live. Well, you know that remains to be determined. Um, but related to that is how well somebody can take over controls if there's a need to do that. And VTTI Virginia Technology Transportation Technology Institute, which is at the Virginia. Technological University in Blacksburg, great place, um, wrote that it appears that people need at least five seconds if they are not totally checked out, close quote. Five seconds is, is a long time, and I just did a couple of comparisons on this. Um, so if you are, so that if you're driving 60 miles an hour and the amount of time it takes to divert three feet if you only move the steering wheel 10 degrees and for those of you who don't measure this uh, 45 degrees is about the limit of how far steering can go on a car so 10 degrees is is a modest but certainly a typical steering change that you might make so if you move the wheel 10 degrees at 60 miles an hour um, to go three feet it takes about two tenths of a second uh, to move six feet laterally, it takes about 0.4 seconds. And of course, if to go 10 feet, it requires about 0.6, maybe six and a half, 0.65 seconds. This is not a lot. If you say Mississippi, that's about a second, right? So this is these are very small intervals. So in the face of the VTTI conclusion that it takes people at least five seconds to take over control of the car, these are significant numbers. You're you're moving well into 
another lane or you're moving well off the road. Uh, another way of looking at this is if if you consider what happens in one second at 60 miles an hour, 10 degrees, you'd move over 15-something feet. Uh, five degrees, you'd move over seven and a half feet. And at only three degrees, which is a very modest change, the car would move laterally uh, almost five feet. So this is well into somebody else's lane, and this is only one-fifth of the time that VTTI says it takes you to take control. So driver monitoring is closely coupled to the amount of expected lateral motion of a vehicle if you're not paying attention and if you're, if you're supposed to take control again. So they're very closely coupled, and the cars need to do a very good job of keeping people engaged and active in the, in the driving process. I don't know how this is possible if you've got a hands-free driving situation or hands-free driving technology that allows you to do nothing with your hands associated with the car and who knows what your hands might be doing at the time um, for a long period of time and all of a sudden, bang, you got to take control. This is a, I think it's an inherently hazardous situation. But if you've got these cameras and these infrared things checking that your eyes are facing forward and that your uh, your vision seems to be at least looking in the right place, doesn't that help? Because I'm thinking a, a driver's seat, it's not that big. I mean, where am I going to put my hands? Get your mind out of the gutter. Does it help? Certainly it helps. But again, the amount of time it takes to move into the next lane is much less than the interval between checks that you're paying attention done by the driver monitoring system. Now, in my car, I get a ping every 20 or 30 seconds, which is annoying, but it kind of keeps me focused on that. But how far could the how far could the um, car have shifted into another lane during that interval if I'm not paying attention? The same thing with the super cruise monitoring your eye motion. It's great that it's doing that. But how often is it doing that? And, and what can happen in between those intervals? It doesn't take very long. It takes only a fraction of a second at 60 miles an hour for your car under a modest change of direction to move into the uh, adjacent lane or to move off the road. I've never seen a comparison in any of the discussions of driver monitoring systems of empirical evidence that their frequency and efficacy of monitoring the drivers are consistent with keeping the car in the lane where it belongs and shutting the car down if there were an obstruction, for example, that wasn't being noticed by the driver. So, uh, yeah, it's better. Better is still <laughs> a long way from good. Okay. And so, again, these things are being developed outside of any sort of regulations or legislation or anything of that nature. This is just kind of car companies well, hoping to avoid some uh, litigation? There, There is um, legislation that was passed in the Infrastructure Act last year that tells NHTSA they have to study driver monitoring. And if they choose, put in a rule that could end up requiring it in all vehicles. Um, I read yesterday, but haven't verified that it's it's on the way to Europe. Um, as a, as a mandate, I, I hadn't heard that, but it sounds like something they could do. I know they're doing uh, speed assistance, intelligent speed assistance. So you know that's that's the next thing coming. I mean, driver monitoring is something that we really support as a way for tech to prevent some of the 
um, problems we see with distracted driving, with alcohol, with drugs, with, you know, medical situations, with um, there's just a number of ways where technology could help keep humans focused and prevent a lot of the accidents that occur due to inattention or, and other um, reasons. So it, it's it's like Fred says, it's something that's got a long way to go. NHTSA has a lot of work to do. The manufacturers have a lot of work to do. and um, But it's going to be one of the things that ends up saving probably more lives than than almost any safety advance that, that's come before. As a final note on this, there is a study that was uh, conducted by VTTI, Virginia Tech, uh, titled Human Factors of Driving Automation hyphen Surprise Event Response Evaluation, which is just what we're looking for. It's, it's stated that it's an extension of previous Ford and VTTI collaborations to assess drivers' responses during a surprise event. The end date on that study was supposed to be uh, last month, the 5th of October. Unfortunately, it's not available on their website. Um, my con my attempts to contact VTTI for a copy so far have been unsuccessful. And it's interesting that if this is the result of a previous collaboration with Ford, that that previous collaboration result is not available on the website. And uh, that would be great to see that information because it would help a lot in structuring people's driver monitoring systems as to what they really need to do and how frequently and how efficient they need to be and keeping drivers' attention on the road. So what's the, the current state of, of driver monitoring systems? We just talked briefly about what GM's doing, where we know they have cameras and infrared trying to see if your eyeballs are open, facing the right direction. I believe Ford has basically the exact same thing. Uh, yeah. Tesla has something they've just kind of added in, but it's only doing, is it only IR? Is it a camera? Is it um, just fiction? Don't know what Tesla's got, but you know, the, several companies use the the tactile response. In other words, if you don't move the steering wheel effectively, the torque response. Yeah, yeah. Then you know that's kind of the standard. I I think they probably yeah. all have that. And in addition to that, there are these other electronic systems that you've mentioned. I don't I'm pretty know sure Tesla uses the camera, um, and they also have a tactile response. That's for sure, because that's what caused NHTSA to warn uh, a company making the little Tesla buddy things that you clip to your steering wheel to make the Tesla think that you actually have hands on it. What's uh, what, in some reports did that video where they, they tied like a five pound weight to the steering wheel and just had self-driving yeah. take over. And um, also on Ford and GM are actually the only driver monitoring systems that have um impressed consumer reports enough uh for them to give them points for those systems no no other manufacturer uh no other manufacturer system is getting benefit or getting positive points for any of their systems yet I, I, tesla is one and, and there are a couple other ones but it's early days it's early, early days, days. <clears throat> but the bottom line on this is uh boys and girls out there be careful because you can drift into the other lane in less than a second if you're not paying attention so don't do that that's a bad idea or like me, you can drive and then just the lane markers disappear entirely. You're going over a corrugated metal bridge and come out the other side and turns out, you know, you're not in the right lane. <laughs> now I wasn't in the left lane either. I was just wherever I wanted to be. And so was everybody else. Um, but thankfully, my car has automatic emergency braking. And we've learned that AEB works. Uh, 
Two new U.S. studies show that automatic emergency braking can cut the number of rear-end automobile crashes in half and reduce pickup truck crashes by more than 40%. So this is good news. It's great news, and it's what we've been saying all along and the reason why we want this stuff getting into cars faster. Because um, if it had gotten into cars faster... Uh, a decade or more ago when manufacturers started installing it, then those numbers might be a lot better. Um, instead, they have insisted on packaging AEB and FCW into these bigger driver assistance systems with functions like lane keeping that aren't used quite as often, maybe turned off. Um, instead of just putting automatic emergency braking forward collision warning into every car standard, um, which is, you know, we ended up suing that's to try to get them to put some sort of minimum performance standard in, in, uh, I believe it was 2016, 2017 timeframe, because we didn't really agree with this voluntary process. And we, and we still don't in, in, in many ways, because we think that this technology could have, you know, AEB and fart collision warning could have been put into vehicles a lot sooner and not parceled out to the folks who could really afford it first or could, who could buy the premium systems um and you know but that said you know the study is, the studies are are very good you know the the IHS study on pickups particularly drew my attention because it's based on you know it looked at pickup weights from 2011 to 2021 and as we know and as all of our listeners know out there when you start putting electric um when you start putting batteries in these trucks and turning them electric, you're going to be adding 2000 pounds or more, um, which is going to seriously increase the weights that um, IHS was discussing and talking about how dangerous pickups are. I mean, that pickups and large SUVs, it appears with the addition of batteries are only going to become even more dangerous. Um, so that's a, that's, a compelling reason for us to get really good automatic emergency braking, forward collision warning onto vehicles faster. And, you know, we've seen automatic emergency braking work at lower speeds consistently. We're not so sure that it's working at higher highway speeds and a lot of the speeds that cause some horrific collisions. Um, and as the study noted, the pedestrian automatic emergency braking, they couldn't even come to any conclusions on um, because of a lack of data. Um, and that's that's an area where we think that NHTSA needs to take a serious look at how um, how well pedestrian automatic emergency braking is performing because they're set to write a rule including that uh, and have already started writing a rule on that, that that should be out in the near future. So listener, if you're wondering where your donations go, Michael just told you where some of your donations go. What does the Center for Auto Safety spend your donations on? They sue NHTSA. Not for profit, it's for fun. No, it's not for profit or for fun. It's to help advance safety causes. So if you're wondering, like, ah, I don't know, these guys sound like they got tons of money. If we don't, um, this is where part of your donations go. Mm -hmm. Keeping agencies like NHTSA in line and in forcing them to improve safety costs money. Filing these lawsuits is not free. And again, there's no you know, awards, you know, monetary awards given to the center for, for defeating a government agency. Um, but anyway, just a quick aside. So donate, it's for a good cause. Well, Michael, uh, you're a lawyer. Isn't suing somebody free? No, and it's it's not fun. It's not something we do 
just it, it, for for the kicks, you know, it's it takes a lot of our time, and you know, we have we we have a lot of expenses and time that go into the cases and it's complicated. And, you know, in this case, we didn't win um, because as you've seen, they continue to roll it out voluntarily and this has continued to drag its feet, setting a minimum performance standard and putting some things into law that could prevent some of the, you know, the bad outcomes we're seeing like phantom breaking, like automatic emergency breaking, just not working for one reason or another in certain circumstances. So there's still, I mean, my take on this entire, you know, conversation is there's, you know, yes, it's working. Automatic emergency braking is working for collision warning. They're, they're combining to work really well, but they can be so, so much better. Um, and the sooner we get that better technology into cars and on the road, the quicker we're going to start seeing better outcomes, lower fatality rates. I just want to follow up by saying, AEB is not one thing. Automatic emergency braking, because it's voluntary, can be whatever the company wants it to be. It can stink, and they can put it out there and say, we have AEB that works very, very poorly. But because it's a voluntary requirement, there is no requirement that they conform to any particular test standard, and that standard has never been written. So... There's a, we used to, you know, you're familiar with vaporware, Anthony, and I like to refer to this as faith-based engineering. It's, it's not a good approach, and people should really understand that the AEB that you see in a car is not any one thing that's been tested to any particular standard of efficacy. It's whatever the company thinks AEB means, and they just throw it out there. So buyer beware, AEB, who knows? You know, hope for the best. Um, check out the uh, vehicle safety check and definitely the Center for Auto Safety. Autosafety.org will let you know if your AEB is, I don't have an acronym for garbage. It's just garbage. <laughs> so uh, speaking of garbage and vehicles, let's go to the recall roundup. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. Uh, this week is, it seems like something we see every week, Ford. Um, potentially recalling 47,046 vehicles. Um, this is their <laughs> rear view camera systems and eight inch displays. Apparently the rear view camera image, um, may be displayed after a backing event has ended. So it seems, um, they're, they're the Ford sync software and their sync software horrible reviews uh was not properly configured when the driver driver operates the vehicle in four low mode I'm not really sure what that means i have a few questions about this recall but michael what, what happened that's four wheel drive low mode so oh. um probably not something you're going to be using when you're backing out of your driveway but you know i could see there are circumstances mm -hmm. where it could happen and Basically, it sounds like there's a ghost image appearing of your reversing act after you've already performed the act. So, um, and that's distracting or confusing to the driver and cause problems. So, um, you know, it's a it's a software update, so it's cheap cheap recall. Um, it's the kind that you know we like to see them moving on and getting out there fast. And um, this is their one of their flagship vehicles at the moment, so it's it's important for them to uh, stay on top of things. Yeah, this is the 2021-2022 uh, Ford Bronco. Um, so also part of this recall, it says these vehicles are not produced in VIN order, vehicle identification number order. Um, 
I'm just naive. I imagine that, you know, the VIN numbers kind of increment, you know, one by one. So, hey, first one is, you know, number one, then two, three. No, or is it just random? It it depends on the manufacturer. And we see that that box checked or, you know, in, in almost every recall uh for some reason it's not you know we don't ever get to see this is this is a problem here for us we don't ever get to see the actual vin numbers involved um they are hidden from the public just like they are in all other NHTSA reports and complaints because NHTSA for whatever reason and the government believe that is critically important personal information even though it is displayed clearly on the front windshield of your car everywhere you take it so it's a problem when we're trying to track complaints. It's a problem when you're trying to track who's covered by a recall. The only people who hold that database are the manufacturers. They work with Carfax to <clears throat> tell you if you have an open recall on your car, but they do not tell you if what recalls you have had, what, where you've had them repaired. They could do all that, but it's it's you know just part of their overreaching uh, and selfish approach to safety data. The industry is constantly trying to prevent anything about crashes from leaking out. That's one of the reasons the standing general order was such a big deal and is so important to uh, future analysis of crashes. Well, the next recall we have is a surprise, surprise from our friends at Volkswagen. And it's another issue with their camera. Um, it's for 2,585 vehicles, uh, the ID4. Um, let's see, the it's potentially affected rear view cameras. And it seems like uh, Volkswagen has problems with the rear view cameras every episode. Yeah, they've had a lot of those. I think some of the other ones were related more to the infotainment screen or the software. This one, it looks like it's actually a faulty camera. That's the problem. So in this case, it may be the hardware, not the software. But it's you know an ongoing issue, and we're seeing this pop up every week. Uh, these issues with the reverse cameras being integrated with the infotainment systems and the screens, and it's you know it, it makes me wonder if there if there there might need to be a little additional rulemaking in there to ensure that uh, safety critical components aren't wired in with these infotainment systems. Yeah, it's weird because the rear view cameras, these are not really new things. I mean, they started appearing on cars, what, 20 years ago? Um, yeah, they've been around a long time, and it, but it took forever to mandate and get them into vehicles. And now it's probably my favorite thing on the car. Personally, <laughs> I love them. I know they're great. I always love them too. When I look and I go, you put it in reverse and you're like, I can't see anything. I have to go out of the car now and clean that little lens off. Damn it. Anyway, uh, our next recall is, oh, this is a pet peeve of mine. Um, this is General Motors, oh, uh, potentially affecting 338,735 vehicles for their GMC Yukon, 20, 2021 model GMC Yukon. Um, and it seems their daytime run, uh, running lights uh, were left on. Um, yeah, this was another one that looked like a... Um I think it was a software update needed. Uh, basically, even after you turned on your other headlamps, the DRLs would stay on. So you'd have a lot of lights on, um, and that would 
increase glare for oncoming drivers and cause issues there. And that's a violation of um, FMVSS 108. So they had to conduct a recall for the non-compliance there as well as, you know, if, if, as well as the potential for some safety issues if if that condition was left on the road. This also affects the Cadillac Escalade, the Chevy Suburban, and the Chevrolet Tahoe. Um, I, I, it's a pet peeve for me is because um, some cars' lights, even in the middle of the day, they're so bright. Like, I can't see anything. It's like I'm staring into the sun. Um, there's got Have you considered uh, sunglasses? Yeah, yeah, I have. I have considered sunglasses, but come on, I'm not the only one. Like, you know, some people's lights, they're just designed to kill you. Well, sure, and why not? But, you know, <laughs> I, <wanna live. laughs> I think most of those incidents are probably from people inadvertently turning on their headlights and the high beams, uh, optimistically saying inadvertently. But, you know, some people are just jerks and like to do that. But I don't think that's because the running lights are staying on. Running lights are are uh, never have that kind of intensity. You know, I think the, the we we get a lot of complaints from folks about other drivers' headlights being too bright. Um, and I would say that the majority of those are a couple of situations. One is, you know, something we talk about a lot: trucks. They're getting bigger, and their headlights are generally pointing right into your right into your right into your face through your rearview mirror, and they're very bright. Um, the other situation is um, people have modified or aftermarket headlights with a range of, of you'll see them sometimes these really bright blue lights or something that just don't they're they're not they're not um, basically they're not installed properly um, and they're directing light into areas where they shouldn't that probably wouldn't be in viol would be in violation of, of NHTSA's compliance standards. But since they're aftermarket parts installed by individuals, a lot of the time they, you know, it, there's not exactly a way to enforce that. Mm, well, you put me in charge. I can take care of all these things. You, you would no. be the light police in Manhattan. <laughs> I would absolutely be the light police. <laughs> All right. Um, school buses uh, is another, uh, this is not a recall, but this is another one about why seatbelts are, aren't necessary to protect school bus passengers during a rollover. This is the, this is the, I don't have a state in front of me. This is horrible. 18 students driver on board McGuffigan County school bus during crash. This is uh, Eastern Kentucky, where they do not require students to wear uh, seatbelts. These are elementary age to, to high school age students. Um, some of the injuries were minor, others critical. Yeah, I think this is the just the the problem with not putting seatbelts on school buses. You know, the, the industry and school districts who oppose the idea and others have relied on this theory that a school bus protects people solely by compartmentalizing uh all these people in a very large bus with all these seats and padding and the fact is when the bus rolls over we see injuries all the time it's it's in school bus crashes and injuries and deaths are very rare um in fact they they trail you know a lot of other of the of the vehicles in fact i think it's one of the lowest crash rates is for is school buses but that said when you see incidents like this where buses roll over you almost inevitably see um injuries because you know that's one of the uh, uh primary functions of a seatbelt is keeping you 
protected in your seat versus allowing you and 40 other kids to go flying around a bus. It's crazy. Is Are these uh, elected officials in Kentucky? I don't understand how this is a state issue. I mean, it's a state issue because states have have been part of the resistance to and, and the main part of the resistance to a federal requirement for seatbelts and school buses because they don't want to pay for them. But but it's a federal requirement to have seatbelts in cars, correct? It's not like each state right. can say, no, you can't have this. And right. it's a federal requirement to have well, this, the states have raised objections over the years that suggest that they're going to have problems with discipline and other issues created by putting students in seatbelts. You know, and there, there are some circumstances where you can see, you know, um, developmentally disabled children on their way to school on the bus might have trouble getting it out of seatbelts. Kids can't really behave um, sometimes. And, you know, seatbelts, kids are always going to find a way to make a mess or to, to, out of something. And seatbelts are included in that. And, and it's, you know, it probably does create a discipline problem for a bus driver occasionally. So that's an issue. Um, there's certainly some issues, but we just don't think they're compelling enough to override the need for us. Uh, seatbelts to protect children in rollover incidents and incident any type of incident, not necessarily even a rollover where you're going to have forces that cause bodies to fly around the vehicle. Uh, unbelievable. I mean, are, have they any legislators in this area come out and said, hey, maybe we should rethink this or they're just kind of like, you know, school buses don't hurt kids. They, yeah, I don't see it getting done. I mean, there are a few states that have requirements for seatbelts in, in school buses, but absent a federal mandate, I just don't see this getting done uh, on a state-by-state basis. Uh, we've been working on this for about, God, well over 20 years, and there have only been maybe two, three states that have come in over that time and, and actually added their requirement. There's just a lot of opposition on the by the bean counters with these this state education. Listener, if there's another place that your donations go to helping us require seatbelts and buses. It's not an easy fix. It's not a quick one. Uh, it's the long haul. Everything we work on is typically a marathon and not a sprint. But your support helps. Um, so in this week's Tesla news, this is a fascinating uh, story. Is a uh, landmark trial involving Tesla autopilot. Pilot. Let me try and let's try and speak again. Landmark trial involving Tesla autopilot weighs if man or machine at fault. Tesla will play a major role in a manslaughter trial this week over a fatal crash caused by a vehicle operating on autopilot. Autopilot is not a real thing. It's just a marketing term. And what could be a defining case for the self-driving car industry? Self-driving cars also just a marketing term i i knew there this is a, a an interesting case in, in a lot of ways i mean the the thing that comes to mind most for me here is that you know it, it's almost like being entrapped uh for this guy and I, I think he's probably going to have a pretty good defense i mean you have someone who is selling vehicles and calling them autopilot full self-driving whatever insinuating in in marketing and and in other ways that they can drive themselves and then you have a guy getting into it uh using autopilot on a freeway when he came off the freeway he ran over a couple on their first date killed them and um now he's being charged i believe with manslaughter um it 
you know, it raises a lot of interesting questions. You know, when you hit that button, it doesn't mean that you're protected from the consequences just because Tesla says you're on autopilot, full self-driving. Um, you yes. can be prosecuted for it. And I think that's a message that, you know, in many ways needs to get out more since we see, you know, from studies that, you know, over 50% of the people who own these cars think they can drive themselves. Um, it does not remove responsibility for the vehicle's actions from the driver. And, but it's, it's, it's also, I say entrapment because some, some people are functionally being set up by the company's marketing to do exactly this. And this type of misuse is completely foreseeable uh, on Tesla's part. They've been seeing it for years and to not be addressing it actively and, and stopping it is, is uh, kind of a testament to the failures and the safety culture over there at Tesla. Yeah, this is a case where the guy, like you were saying, he's in his Tesla Model S. It was a 2019 crash. Um, he exited the freeway. His Tesla Model S um, ran a red light and crashed into this Honda Civic. Um, you know, there, the autopilot was advertised as, you know, it can control spree, speed, braking, and steering. It was engaged at the time of the crash, um, and it couldn't handle something as, in my mind, and from what we've seen, uh, as basic as handling a red light. Um, and it, this is unfortunate. I mean, Tesla doesn't face charges in the case, um, which is fascinating to me as well. I mean, I, I'm, I, I couldn't imagine this guy not wanting to sue Tesla or at least their marketing department for false advertising. Well, the yeah. suit's a civil action, right, Michael? And he's, yeah. he's, yeah. this is a criminal activity. So they're, they're, they follow separate paths. It's not to say that that civil action won't take place in the future, but this is just a criminal uh, criminal charge. Huh. Yeah. Well, in, in addition to the criminal trial related to the crash, um, one of the uh, victim's families is suing Tesla in a trial that's going to start in January. Sure. There you go. That's a separate path. Right. Fascinating. Um, and, yeah, I mean, and that raises just, you know, it raises a lot of issues about the future and how these things need to be rolled out. I mean, you, you cannot put people in a circumstance where, you know, they're probably going to misuse the technology, but you're going to go ahead and sell it to them and then claim that you have no role in, in the criminal act that took place because I, that, that defies logic to me. And, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point uh, Tesla is charged criminally. Maybe it's I mean, obviously, they're already in an investigation by the DOJ for for possible federal or safety violations. But, you know, it's it's certainly within the realm of possibility that they could be charged criminally for an accident when someone was using full self-driving and someone is killed. I, I don't think that is a out of the realm of possibility. Hmm. And again, related to Tesla, uh, this week in auto safety, um, you know, it, it's not always a, uh, a long ago historic event, but November 2013, NHTSA opened its first defect inv investigation into Tesla. Uh, this was one about battery fires caused by road debris flying into the battery. There was an over-the-air update that adjusted ride height and a service campaign that added three new protective parts but this was never deemed a safety defect. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this one is this this literally, I think, is a, is a circumstance where NHTSA whiffed and they let Tesla keep doing the kind of bullshit they've been pulling for years, which is 
putting out an actual fix for a safety problem, uh, putting out an over-the-air update, and putting new parts on the vehicle to shield the battery and not calling it a safety recall. Um, you know, if you if you do that once, then, it, you know, to me, it, it they knits a whiff on it and they set up this special treatment pattern that Elon Musk and Tesla relied on for years to not alert the agency to safety issues. And, you know, something that NHTSA has had to crack down on lately, which is uh, Tesla putting out over the air updates uh, for safety issues without notifying the agency or calling it a recall. Um, this this battery issue is what set the stage for that nine years ago. Well, since then, you see every EV manufactured has a ton of safety and extra framing put around batteries. But I imagine also legacy car manufacturers are used to um, things shooting up to the undercarriage of their cars and probably wouldn't have made this mistake. But I'm an optimist. What do I know? Yeah, well, it's hard to know. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of gas tank issues over the years. So every new vehicle that comes out, people have to consider a lot of parameters associated with the gas tank and, and, uh, and other flammable component locations in a car. So the fact that it's happened frequently is no guarantee that it won't happen again. But I think people are generally attentive to the issues. It just comes down to if they want to charge us for it, think we'll pay for it, I guess. Um, I'd pay extra to make sure my car doesn't catch on fire. Is is that an extra? Hell, you know, we're, we were going so well through this entire episode, Michael, and he put himself on mute and we're watching him on camera and he was babbling away there for a minute. He got really animated. It was exciting. His hat yep. came off. No. And now I'm not going to say what I, what I, what I plan to say. We can save that for the next episode as a teaser. Uh, <laughs> I'm disappointed. Teased us though. <laughs> Um, is there anything else we need to cover this week? Is well, there there's one thing, Michael, say? Michael, there, there's always a hazard when I have extra time on my hands. So one of the things that I did, and this might be interesting to people, is that the uh, the hazard associated with these cars is not always apparent, and these vehicles is not always apparent. So uh, what I did is I wanted to make it really easy to understand what can happen with these self-driving vehicles and, and vehicles in general. So I looked at the equivalent between the kinetic energy of a vehicle and the explosive power of TNT. Now, I'll go through a little bit of physics here, but I won't. So have you ever been in a spa or seen a spa where they put rocks, put hot rocks on people's backs to relax them? It's, it's kind of nice, right? They do that at so, Guantanamo, I think. So what is the difference between having that rock gently placed on your back and having somebody hurl that rock at you, that same rock, uh, at full extension of their arm as hard as they can and hitting you? What What's the fundamental difference between those two things, those two situations, without getting into psychology? Uh, the cost. <laughs> well, momentum. <laughs> momentum. There you go. Uh, actually, very close, Michael. You're... you're your physics grade is improving as we speak there, but it's actually the kinetic energy of the of the rock, and um, that kinetic energy of the rock goes up very quickly as you increase the speed of the rock. So the same thing is true with trucks and vehicles. Now I'm going to ask your minds to go back to the war in Afghanistan, where they would occasionally show videos of missiles 
um, coming down from the predator drones and hitting buildings and things would go up in a big ball of smoke, right? You've, you've seen that. Right. Um, those were typically due to something called the Hellfire missile, which included nine pounds of TNT. Okay, so that's, that's the kind of explosive energy you get from a, a relatively small amount of TNT. So it's pretty energetic stuff. You can make an equivalence between the explosive energy in TNT and the kinetic energy of a truck or a vehicle because when they hit something, all of that kinetic energy is expended in whatever they hit, right? Ideally. So, or, or not ideally, but that's, that's just what happens. That's basic physics. So I, I wanted to make it clear to people, you know, what that equivalence is. So if you have a 40 ton gross vehicle weight, uh, truck is coming at you at about, uh, let me see, 60 miles per hour, then that has about three and a half pounds of TNT equivalent. So whatever that big ball of smoke and damage that you saw from the uh, the Hellfire missile hitting a building, okay, is one third of that is, is the amount of energy that's in the truck that's coming at you. If it goes up to uh, 90 miles an hour, which occasionally happens with trucks, right? They go fast sometimes. That's equivalent to about seven pounds of TNT. So you're getting into the range of energy, the kinetic energy associated with these vehicles that is roughly equivalent to a Hellfire missile being fired at you from, uh, you know, a couple thousand feet overhead. So it's a lot of energy. But you said a 40-ton truck. So what, I mean, what is that? Is that a truck carrying 10 other trucks? No, there were a lot of forty-ton trucks on the highway. Like forty-ton well, gross yeah. vehicle weight. Like a, a freightliner. Like the. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not. It's not a Hummer. I mean, a Hummer is probably eight tons, right? Correct. It's okay. it's a over-the-road tractor trailer. Sem- eighteen oh, okay. eighteen-wheeler, as we call it. Okay. Got it. Okay. Carrying so the, Hummers. So the, the federal, question that the we're rising, limited at eighty thousand pounds. So that's going to. Oh, be so forty-ton is the yeah. is the max. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's one comparison, right? But let's, if we bring it back to a car, an automobile, they're a lot lighter, okay, but they also go fast. And if you look at that comparison to explosive, basically the car, typical car driving around at 60 miles an hour has the kinetic energy that is roughly equivalent to the explosive in a hand grenade. So we've all seen the war movies. We've seen what hand grenades can do. It's never pretty. That's the amount of energy, roughly, that you're you're dealing with. Now, I got to say, nobody else has checked these numbers for me, so I could be off by a factor <laughs> or two. Okay, but I think uh, you can start a, a a bumper sticker business. My other car is a hand grenade. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, but that's a really good point because when you're talking about unlicensed and unverified automatic vehicles being driven around on the streets, it's like having roughly hand grenades being carried around the streets with the pins pulled just waiting for something to happen that, you know, allows the clip to fly off. And there you go. It's a lot of energy. And and I don't think people generally think about it this way. They think of themselves behind the wheel of a car and, oh, you know, how much, how much danger can it really be? There is a lot of kinetic energy in these vehicles that are being driven on the highways and, uh, and a lot of kinetic energy being driven, being delivered on the highways by these unmanned vehicles that are you know propagating on the city streets so and that's the, an aside the weight's only increasing too right <laughs> the weight's always increasing yeah 
and that all of that goes into the energy of a collision. We were talking last week about the difference between a big car and a small car in a collision. If you just take the cars and put them all together, right, and you, and you put two of them heading into each other, that's like two hand grenades going off. That's a lot of freaking energy. Okay, so I just that's an aside. Just wanted to point that out. And yes, if anybody wants to check my numbers, please let me know, and uh, just send it to contact at autosafety.org, where we get all the email and love to have the conversation. Yeah, I and, wanted uh, to. Uh, I wanted to hear how many sticks of dynamite is in a kilogram. Because I'm more of a cartoon fan. I get more out of knowing how many sticks of dynamite this would be. I'm not, you know, I don't know that answer. I don't right. know that answer. I'll ask Wiley Coyote. <laughs> he would know. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Fred is available for birthday parties, bar mitzvahs, bar mitzvahs, and any uh, any <laughs> events that, to mark milestones. But But only if you really want people to stop their conversations and walk away. Another episode well. has concluded. <laughs> Go to autosafety.org. This is going well so far. I like this. <laughs> Click on the donate button. <laughs> Listeners don't know that I messed up the first time. Okay. Um, click donate. Uh, well, tell we're here to tell them. Uh, you, look, I'm not telling the two of our listeners what you guys are wearing. They're both wearing hats. <laughs> so bizarre. This is how badly donations are needed. The two of them are freezing their asses off. I don't know why. <laughs> because they're living in the Center for Auto Safety Beach House in Maui. All right. Thanks, everybody. Till next Thank week. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.